0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Parliament was recalled from its summer break this
1: week as MPs met to debate how to respond to the crisis in Afghanistan. The West could not continue this US-led
2: mission, a mission conceived and executed in support
0: and defense of America without American logistics Without US air power and without American might.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In our fourth summer interview special, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Malcolm Rifkind, the former Conservative Defence and Foreign Secretary. In a week when the Taliban shocked the West with its rapid advance to Afghanistan, we'll be examining where this leaves UK foreign policy, what does it mean for the so-called special relationship, and what does it mean for the future of foreign interventions. So Malcolm, welcome to Paint Politics. Thank you very much. So obviously we're in the August period. Parliament has been recalled this week and we saw a very feisty debate. How much of it did you catch and what did you make of the contributions to MP on this very pressing issue of how the UK has ended up in this situation of being forced out of Afghanistan much quicker and in a way it didn't really want to have to leave?
2: Well, I wasn't able to watch all of it, but it seems to have been a very sombre occasion, not surprisingly. And that's often when the House of Commons is at its best. When there are real issues, everyone knows that something very bad has happened. And you get members of parliament speaking very much from the heart. Um, Tom Tugendhat in particular appears to have moved the House of Commons, uh, and very uh, unsurprisingly, because he has both a military background and a strong, good knowledge of foreign policy.
1: Now, if we look at what's happened over the past week, that we know the US forces were going to withdraw themselves from Afghanistan by the end of August, and it's not a decision that the UK has been particularly happy with, because we've heard from Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who's made it quite clear that in fact, the UK explored every other alternative do you think there was ever realistically any alternative? Because in that House of Commons debate, lots of MPs have decried how we've abandoned Afghanistan, how we have not secured the gains that were made over the past 20 years. But really, I'm still not quite clear what the alternative could have been.
2: Well, I think you pose a very important question because I think there are really two issues running in parallel. There was the more fundamental question, should NATO, particularly the United States, remain militarily in Afghanistan indefinitely uh, with the aspiration to ultimately defeat the Taliban. I think it had become increasingly obvious, not just recently, but for several years, that that just was not going to happen and that the best contribution the United States and NATO could make uh, would simply have been enabling the Afghan government to remain technically in power uh, while unable to govern large parts of the country. So I'm not too critical of President Biden and of the United States, in the more strategic question they took, is the time approaching to withdraw and do so in a way that enables the Afghan government at least to have a good prospect of remaining in power? Where I am extremely critical, and of course it's not just me, many others as well, is of the way that the White House, starting with President Trump and then with President Biden, have sought to execute that policy. First of all, of course, there was virtually no meaningful dialogue that I'm aware of with their NATO allies. But perhaps more fundamental in terms of what's actually happened on the ground in Afghanistan, I think the rot really began under President Trump when he initiated bilateral negotiations with the Taliban and took the extraordinary decision uh, that in order to please the Taliban, uh, the Afghan government would not be permitted to take part in these discussions. And so you have an, you had this uh, extraordinary situation of the United States and the Taliban having dialogue, talks over a number of times, starting with Trump, continuing, as I understand it, under Biden, and the country most affected, their own elected democratic government, was not permitted to take part. I hesitate to say what I'm about to say. As uh, so far as I can recollect, it's the very first time since the Munich conference in the 1930s, when Adolf Hitler and Neville Chamberlain and several others uh, decided how Czechoslovakia was going to be carved up without the democratic Czechoslovak government being permitted to be part of the conference which determined their fate and their Mm. ultimate destruction of their country. So that, I think, was extraordinarily stupid. But of course, it had the impact, not just of looking bad, but it so humiliated uh, President Ghani and his government in the eyes of the Afghan people, never mind the rest of the world, in the eyes of the Afghan people, uh, that it was clearly seen that the United States had so, uh, had virtually a contempt uh, for this government. I don't think they would describe it in those terms, and they probably didn't intend this to happen, but that was the consequence of it. And therefore, they the rot in the morale, not just of the government in Afghanistan, but perhaps more importantly in terms of national security of the armed forces and of those who would expect expected to fight the Taliban, became very, very difficult to sustain, to put it mildly. Uh, the final point I would make on this particular issue, and it's the other fundamental mistake, and I, this is President Biden's responsibility, because he's been now responsible since January, I, and I do not understand it, why they did not agree that even if the American boots on the ground were all going to be removed, and there was only 2,000 of them left, I mean, the main military contribution in the recent past has not been boots on the ground. It's been the American air support. The Taliban have no air power. Uh, Therefore, the United States and the Afghan Air Force itself uh, together uh, had total superiority in the air. And that would have been hugely important, not necessarily preventing completely but severely impeding any progress by the Taliban on the ground uh, over the last few weeks.
1: One of the things that I've been puzzled by this, you mentioned, obviously, those negotiations that President Trump opened with the Taliban. And when he gave that address to the uh, United States public on Monday evening, um, President Biden did seem to sort of pin some of the blame on this by saying, look, this is what President Trump did and we were left with this. But I'm not sure how much that hangs together because you look on nearly every other area of policy, be it foreign or domestic, President Biden has managed to overturn a lot of what President Trump did very quickly and very rapidly. Yet he pushed ahead with this and he does have to bear some responsibility to that. And there's been lots of reporting out of America that shows that, in fact, you know, this is a policy he's wants to do going way back to when he was vice president. So you can blame President Trump for some of this, but a lot of it has to rest on Biden as well, because he could have slowed this down. He could have reintroduced some air cover. So the, the chaotic withdrawal does rest on his shoulders to a great extent.
2: Yeah, I, I don't uh, dispute that. I have just said a few moments ago, of course, that The Rock began with the decision to exclude the Afghan government from the bilateral talks between America and the Taliban. That was Trump's decision. But you're entirely correct uh, that Biden's position, to be fair, he's been consistent since, as you've indicated, since he was vice president, that he's had the greatest skepticism about the American president uh, American presence in uh, Afghanistan at all. So uh, I, I don't think one can accuse him of inconsistency, but one can still say that he has failed to appreciate the consequences of the way he has chosen to extricate the United States. Uh, There has been comment, and I think there has to be some truth in this, that he was more concerned about the domestic implications within the United States of uh, the way that these matters were handled. And he was determined to show that he was a tough president and he would deliver what he said he was going to deliver. Well, that's not too different from many democratic leaders in various countries. But on an issue of this fundamental importance, I come back to the point that he should have shown by various means, right to the very end, that he did have confidence in the Afghan government, not just by words, but by deeds. And the most important deed he could have offered uh, would have been continuing air support, perhaps for another year or so. I have to say open-ended. Because there would be no risk to American lives. The truth be told, American air power would have been able to impose a very severe punishment on the Taliban uh, without any cost to themselves of a significant kind. Why he did not do that, I cannot begin to understand. I suspect it was contrary to the advice he received from the Pentagon and from other closer advisors. And on this issue, which is not a peripheral issue, one fundamental to what we've seen over the last week, the total collapse of the Afghan military Mm. and the Afghan government within days rather than months or longer, uh, that has to be President Biden's responsibility. Time will tell how serious that is, but it's pretty serious on everything that we can see at this moment in time.
1: Well, of course, and we'll come to the UK in a moment, but just on that last thing about what this means for President Biden, foreign interventions are not often particularly popular domestically. And whenever leaders do them, it's very hard to make the case that this is the good and right thing to do. And part of the reason that President Biden has done this is because he essentially said that when he was elected to the White House, he was going to continue a lot of the same Worldview in terms of American intervention. He's been a long time skeptic, and a lot of those voters that he won over in the Midwest are also skeptics of foreign intervention. So the US has got itself into a very odd position that it's doing this thing that's proven very unpopular with its allies, very unpopular with NATO. But ultimately, despite all the scenes we've seen, it could still prove quite popular for him at home. So in that sense, he may actually not regret the events that we've seen.
2: Well, time will tell him that, and you might very well be correct. But I would want to make another point. You know, yes, it is true that the question of Western intervention or any foreign intervention in uh, another state in some other part of the world has been proven to be pretty dodgy, pretty. Uh, unwise on most occasions. But in the case of Afghanistan, don't let us lose sight of the original reason for the intervention. This is not the Iraq War, which was a totally unnecessary conflict that President Bush and Tony Blair, between the two of them, uh, decided was somehow in the public and wider interest. Iraq was a total disaster right from the very beginning. The reasons why there was military intervention in Afghanistan were entirely justified, no question about it. You'd have the biggest, uh, most serious terrorist attack the world has ever known in, the New, in uh, New York and in the United States on 9-11. Uh, and that was organized, and there's no dispute about it, uh, by al-Qaeda, whose base was Afghanistan and who were allowed to continue to use that as a sanctuary. So uh, there need be no qualms about whether intervention in the first instance was justified. What clearly uh, happened thereafter Uh, was America and the international community as a whole, including the United Kingdom, became too ambitious. uh, That instead of saying the objective of this is to eliminate Al-Qaeda and therefore we have to get rid of the Taliban, it became a whole social, cultural, and political attempt to reshape uh, the nature of Afghan society, to make it into a democratic state, to ensure the rights of women, all of which were very honorable objectives, but which inevitably clashed with the sense of identity of many Afghans. Mm. People in any country will not normally take with any comfort or pleasure to the invasion of their country by a foreign state, even if the motives are honorable and genuine, and perhaps even in their own interest. Uh, You can get away with that for a period of time, but the presence of large numbers of international troops in your country for 20 years, fighting a domestic insurgency, uh, that creates mixed emotions in any country as it has clearly done in Afghanistan.
1: Now, let's have a look at what this is going to mean for UK foreign policy. Um and I know we've spoken about this before when I we did the FT a couple of years ago that post Brexit a lot of focus has gone on the transatlantic relationship, the idea that obviously certainly for probably the past four decades, if not longer, it's been the key pillar of UK foreign policy. And that pillar has become even more important as we've gone through the Brexit process here. And there's certainly been disruption over this issue because when President Biden came in, I think Boris Johnson was quite hopeful of having a bit more normality in the fact that President Biden came to the UK. The G7 summit in Cornwall this year seemed to be a great success it's first things were going in a good direction. But then we've had this very clear disagreement about what to do with Afghanistan. And some of it's been tactful, some of it's been less tactful. How damaging do you think that is? And where does this
2: relationship go next, Malcolm? I would not uh, attach too much importance to this particular disagreement, having a fundamental disruptive effect on British-United States relations. Anyone who studies the U.S.-U.K. relationship over the last 70 years. It's difficult to identify a single British prime minister who at some time during their term of office did not have a blazing row with the then American president. Uh, I served in uh, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet and in John Major's cabinet. Margaret Thatcher, was well-known, had an extraordinarily close relationship with Ronald Reagan. They had a massive bust-up uh, over the invasion of Grenada uh, when the United States, without consulting, the Queen, who happened to be head of state of Grenada, uh, sent their army in without even letting the British government know they were doing it until it was already happening. Uh, on, uh, likewise, Margaret Thatcher had very strong disagreements uh, with uh, Reagan over nuclear weapons when the Reykjavik summit between Reagan and Gorbachev took place. And I can think of other examples of that kind. Uh, John Major, when I served as defense secretary and foreign secretary in John Major's government, very good relations with Bill Clinton. But a major bust-up over Bosnia, not just Britain. Britain, as part of uh, Europe as a whole, uh, France and Germany had similar differences. Now, you go back to Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, or you can go to Harold Wilson refusing to send troops to British troops to Vietnam. So, and I can give a number of other examples of that kind. So, don't read too much into this in terms of its overall strategic implications. And the final point I make on this particular question you've asked me is, you know. The United States, and particularly under a president like President Biden, not so much under Trump, fully understands that even as the world's greatest superpower, in political terms, it needs allies when it's pursuing its foreign policy across a whole spectrum of different areas, different problems around the world. If not the United Kingdom as their closest ally, the question has to be asked, well, who would be their closest ally? Who would fill that gap? And the short answer is, there isn't anyone. France has Many areas I was where... about
1: to mention France because that's the, the the country that's always sort of slotted
2: in as the place that America might turn to yeah well, France is the only other Western European country that has a significant military capability, and of course it's a, a nuclear weapon state, but from de Gaulle onwards, the French have always held themselves at a distance from the United States because it's the nature of French politics that France must never see itself as too closely integrated with U.S. policy, and that's what kept France uh, out of the the NATO-integrated structure for very, very many years. Germany, economically, hugely important to the United States, but not in military terms and not in foreign policy terms. And so you're you're then running out of alternatives. Uh, So the United Kingdom happens quite genuinely to be, not for tactical reasons, but it so happens that on most foreign policy issues uh, in relation to China, in relation to Russia, Uh, in relation to uh, how you deal with terrorism, Uh, the United Kingdom tends to be closer than any other country to the U.S. I chaired uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee. We had oversight of our intelligence agencies. I remember going to Washington each year uh, for a whole week, visiting CIA, the National Security Agency, the various parts of the American intelligence community. In each and every case, they said, look, you know, the Five Eyes Agreement, which is now well known, and the relationship with the UK on intelligence matters is infinitely superior and, and important to the US because of the quality of UK intelligence. doesn't mean we always get it right, but compared to most, we are more likely to. Uh, now, that is something which can't be replicated easily. So I don't want to get over-enthusiastic uh, uh, about the relationship. There, As I pointed out, there have been big blow-ups as well. I was involved in one of these blow-ups when I was Defence Secretary trying to deal with the Bosnian conflict, uh, but it doesn't undermine the fundamental relationship.
1: And I think that's obviously, you've got to put it in that context, particularly with
2: intelligence
1: sharing. And there are obviously questions here about what's happened, because the Five Eyes relationship means that the UK and the US, being the two key countries and partners in Afghanistan, have obviously shared intelligence yet. Yeah. We've seen an almighty intelligence failing over what happened here, that there's oodles of quotes of Boris Johnson saying there is no military solution for the Taliban, President Biden saying there's no way the Taliban are going to overrun Afghanistan with immediately, and it's all been proven wrong. And there does seem to have something that's gone quite badly wrong with intelligence gathering.
2: I would I would suggest a note of caution. I know you're not the first person to talk about a major intelligence failure, but an intelligence failure normally means that something ought to have been known which wasn't known. For example, there was a major intelligence failure over the Falklands uh, when we ought to have understood that within the Argentine government, uh, there was a determination to use military means if necessary to recover the Falklands. That had emerged not just overnight, but over a period of time, and that was missed. That was an intelligence failing. Uh, What's happened in uh, Afghanistan in terms of the collapse of the Afghan government this wasn't expected by the Afghan government. It wasn't expected by anyone in, in Afghanistan. Mm. With the, even the Taliban themselves, their leader has just said, we have come to power in a, in a way that we hadn't anticipated. Because everyone assumed there would be a long guerrilla struggle and they probably would win. Uh, that would certainly have been the view of the Taliban. But they didn't expect the Afghan government to suddenly collapse. So it's not as if there was some information which should have been noticed and wasn't noticed. We can now provide explanations of what appears to have happened. But what you can never anticipate for certain is the question of the morale of armed forces. You know, uh, this is the crucial point, I think, that I'm trying to get across. We are told that the the Taliban have roughly 70,000, 75,000 people who are their fighters, and that the Afghan army was 300,000 strong. Well, that may be a bit of an exaggeration in terms of the real figures, but certainly much larger. Mm. But an army can easily be defeated if its morale is poor. And one only has to think of what happened, for example, sadly, to the the French army at the beginning of the Second World War, uh, which was much more powerful in many respects uh, than uh, might have been imagined. But it turned out their morale was poor. There was a defeatist strain in French politics, which led to Vichy and which led to collaboration with uh, Germany by too many French, not all by any means. Well, so it's that dimension. You can be aware of it, but you can't quantify it in advance. Now, there are obviously questions, aside from intelligence, feeling about
1: whether the UK government was sort of ready for this. And obviously, it's been a lot of reporting this week about the fact that Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, was on holiday and Boris Johnson was briefly on holiday over the weekend. Um, and we're well, recording this just after a Daily Mail front page that said the, the Foreign Secretary was advised to call his counterpart in Afghanistan and didn't and delegate it to a junior minister. Do you think there's any fair criticism that within Whitehall, the UK just wasn't on it in the way it should have been when it was clear the Taliban from late last week was making advances much quicker than, yes, intelligence may have expected, but ministers should have been more on it, even though it's August.
2: Well, ministers do try to be with it, even during August. Uh, Let me try and be as objective as I can. I don't think at the end of the day, the question of whether a particular phone call was made or wasn't made and who made it. Errors might have been made, but I don't think that is a hanging offence. I think, obviously... Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab will be considering whether he he's wise to have gone abroad uh, on what I'm sure was a well-deserved holiday, but whether the timing really was appropriate. But that's really for him to, to think about. I think we ought to decide on these matters, not based on the relatively minor question of who made which telephone call and whether they should have been in one place or another. As I understand it, Raab was uh, involved with the cobra meetings the special emergency mm. ministry meetings he was able to do that he was able to make phone calls he was in the fact that he was in crete rather than london was unfortunate uh, but that is uh, sometimes what happens even in the best of circumstances
1: Where do you think this means for the future of NATO and future foreign interventions, Malcolm? Because every time we go through one of these interventions, it always begins with very high hopes. And then the harsh reality on the ground comes through. There's obviously some notable exceptions where liberal interventionism by the West has worked and has produced a positive outcome. And you mentioned earlier Iraq, which is obviously a very different case to Afghanistan. But when you put the two together, which both followed in the wake of the 9-11 attacks... What do you think this makes for the moral case, the future of the West? Because it's very clear President Biden is no fan of foreign interventions and will seek to avoid that at any cost during his presidency.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about w- whether, uh, despite President Biden saying America is back and was going to be involved and in leading the free world and so forth, whether that is com- compatible with what's happened in Afghanistan. Uh, I-, I have to say, my own honest view is that it is compatible, that actually at the end of the day, the issues of current geopolitics that are really fundamental to American security are the growth of China and the challenge to the United States as to who is to be the dominant power in the Pacific and who indeed is able to have the strength of uh, position uh, to be the global world leader. Uh, that is fundamental to United States' interests. Uh, equally, if Russia under Putin uh, was to become resurgent and aware that involved not just the aggression we've already seen in Ukraine, but was to be a threat uh, to the Baltic states or to Poland and other countries that are part of NATO. That goes to the very heart uh, of the Atlantic Pact, and the United States is an Atlantic and a Pacific power. The question of whether that's equally fundamental to American security, what happens in Afghanistan, or British security for that matter, is not quite so persuasive, um, because the issue First of all, the Taliban are not, they're a pretty nasty organization, but unlike ISIS or al-Qaeda, the Taliban, so far as we can tell, couldn't care less what happens in the outside world. They're completely obsessed by what's happening within Afghanistan. They're not a, a global terrorist organization. So in that respect, they're not a threat to the United States or to anyone else. Where they are a threat is, first of all, obviously to their own people in terms of the freedoms that will be removed or, or reduced. But uh, own, the the main significant Western interest is what their relationship will be with al-Qaeda from now on. Mm. And not just will they allow them to be in Afghanistan, but will they allow them to plot and plan evil deeds from within Afghanistan? If they are, then the Americans already said, not just now, but in the last two or three weeks, they have said they would return to deal with any terrorist threat uh, within Afghanistan, that is not the same as saying you're going to send in large numbers of military forces to try and defeat the Taliban. So let's get these issues properly separated as they should be.
1: And finally, Sir Malcolm, where does this go for the UK next? Obviously, the Johnson government has announced this asylum programme to allow 20,000 Afghan nationals to for asylum and come to the UK over a five-year period. Some people have said that this should be widened and that the numbers are actually not big enough. But that feels as if it's the main thing the UK can do that we know our ambassador is still in Kabul and is trying to process as many visas as quickly as possible. And that's going to come to an end by the end of August or really whenever the US pulls out, because as is the thread throughout this, when the US goes, the UK has to follow it too. Is there anything else you think the UK should be thinking about or doing with regards to Afghanistan, the Taliban, and where this story goes next?
2: Well, we have a fundamental obligation to the Afghans who actually helped our armed forces, either as interpreters or translators, or in some other way, have endangered themselves and their families by the support they gave to the UK. That that is a fundamental obligation that has to be uh, completely honoured. We also have a broader obligation for those who might, in a legitimate way, be claiming political asylum. Now, let me make a point which I think is in danger of being missed at the moment. Because of the way things have worked out, however terrible, and rightly so, however terrible we see the situation in Afghanistan, we're not in the same kind of territory as we were, for example, with Syria. In Syria, you had a civil war which continued right to the very end and which involved door to door fighting and uh, buildings being blown up so that cities like Aleppo and many other cities in Syria. Uh, were left as rubble, and huge numbers of people were fleeing across the borders uh, to avoid being killed during the conflict itself. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, for reasons that we've just been discussing, uh, the war is over, and it happened without any urban destruction, without the destruction of major cities or major uh, centers of population because of the collapse of the Afghan uh, government. So that there is, a, if I can dare use the phrase, there is a, that particular silver lining uh, that Afghanistan's economic structure and its infrastructure have not been destroyed during this particular war. And the Taliban, of course, are very fortunate that they are going to benefit from that. But in, in some ways, so are the Afghan people. And uh, for the number of people likely to be wanting to flee Afghanistan, so far as one can tell, is likely to be far fewer than we saw from Syria, where they were Mm. actually fleeing a war that was going on every day and likely to uh, have themselves and their families and their children as uh, victims uh, when uh, Syrian government forces were attacking Syrian rebel forces. We're past that now in Afghanistan. And uh, for the humanitarian challenge that we face, although still serious, is not of the scale that we saw in Syria. uh, And that should be borne in mind.
1: And I think all the Western nations and nearby nations will be crossing their fingers to very much hope that is the case. So, Malcolm Rifkin, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, your smart speaker, to receive episodes as soon as they're released. If you're feeling hopeful this August day, then you could leave us a nice review or positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. We'll be back next week with another interview special. In the meantime, thanks for listening.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly
1: Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.